0: Did anybody notice any judging thoughts when you were meditating? (laughs) No. Not a one. Not a uh, a one. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) Hmm. How many people would say they. um, uh, How many people have an inner critic? (laughs) (laughs) I know it's kind of a silly question, but. Some people didn't put their hands up, that's okay. How many people are um, often judgmental about themselves? Let me see your hands. Okay. What about judging of others? Yes. <laughs> we enjoy that more. <laughs> it seems, right? Kind of. We get a little sadistic pleasure from turning that voice outwards. (laughs) So this is one of my um, favorite themes to talk about. Not my favorite parts of reality, but one of my favorite things to talk about. And I'm doing a lot of writing and reflecting about it, so it's very much on my mind, in my mind. (laughs) A little too much in my mind. It's actually interesting to notice, the more I write about it, the more the critic gets a little activated. (laughs) starts to get a little, you know, full of itself and vocal. and. And I talk about it a lot because it's such a source of pain for many, many people, if not most people that I meet and most people that I work with and who are students, meditation students, have you know challenging relationship to this part of the mind, the critical, judgmental, harsh, of our mind. So you might not call it your critic, you might call it your gremlin, or your, you know, killjoy, or your <laughs> you know, taskmaster, or the driver, or the perfectionist, or uh, I've been hearing all kinds of interesting names recently, um, the underminer. What are your names for the critic? Anybody? Motivator. The motivator, right, yes, the motivator. The inner bitch. The inner bitch. (laughs) 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 That's good. Uh? Mother. Mother, yes, (laughs) mother. Me. Me. Mm -hmm. drill Drill sergeant. Has anybody met a happy critic? Like a happy judging mind. Do they go together? No, not so much. So it's interesting that we, that it's such a common visitor, you know, given how little, given that we will say, say, you know, I want to be happy, I want to be peaceful, I want to be free. And yet we give a lot of attention, or the critic takes a lot of airspace in our heads, that is not necessarily to our benefit. So as, you, as many of you know, the, there's a, in, in the Buddhist texts, there's a, this dude that hangs out um, called Mara. Who is like the personification of of the unconscious and um ignorance, and he visits the Buddha every now and then, the Buddha prior to his awakening he's you know on the night of his awakening, and you know the story he's the um, Buddha's sitting determined not to get up from his seat until he. See, until he realizes the truth of this experience of life, a vision of nature. And um, as he's m- moving through that process, that voice, in this case called Mara, that what we know as our little self-doubting, niggling critic, comes and says, Who are you? Who do you think you are? Why do you deserve to attain full awakening? That voice sound familiar? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are meditating all holy and spiritual? You know, going to Spirit Rock and, you know, filling your bank account of, you know, meditation credit. <laughs> um. And the Buddha, so so the mythology goes, this is a Buddhist myth, really, fable, um, doesn't say anything, but he touches the earth, touches the earth as witness for his right to take his seat, for his right to attain awakening, for his right to be here, in this human body. So he summons the earth as his witness for his worthiness. And I'm always really moved by that story. I, always, I can feel I get teary every time I say it, and I've said it a lot. Because there's something about the, that symbol of knowing one's worth and value to take one's seat in this life, in this body, in this moment to say, yes, I am worthy to be here. I am worthy to be alive. I am worthy for this experience called life. And I don't have to do anything to prove it or earn it. It's inherent, it's intrinsic to who I am. So it's a very powerful statement. And then what I find most interesting about this story, this personification of the Buddha's critic or doubting mind, is it doesn't go away after he attains full, complete awakening. You know, we tend to think, oh, someone gets enlightened, and then they're done with all that kind of icky, bitsy, messy stuff. But it keeps coming back. You know, as a voice of mm, doubt or mm, sort of encouraging him to kind of veer away from the path or veer away from teaching, veer away from helping people. And usually there's a little time where they have a little dialogue, and the Buddhist, you kind of get the sense that the Buddha gets a little caught for a little bit. As we do, you know, the coach is sort of, you know, the, 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 the critic comes often in the form of this sort of coaching voice, like it's on our side, like, yeah, you know, do this, it's good for you, you know. Go meditate, you know. It's good for your spirit, you know. And then we'll destroy your meditation at the end of it because it didn't f- reach some attainment, level of attainment or standard, right? So, and it, But at some point the Buddha says, oh, I see you, Mara, I see you. And each time the Mara is seen, he gets so disappointed and he frowns and he withers away, he kind of dissolves. This is the power of mindfulness, this is the power of awareness. When we bring that clarity to our own experience, to our own mind, we see it for what it is, it doesn't have the same grip, which is why Mindfulness is liberating because it allows us to unhook the bind, unhook the belief, unhook the power from things uh, that we give to, like the critic. Even on close to his deathbed, the the mawa showed up, telling him to like, yeah, it's time for you to kind of retire and you know. Go attain nirvana and be done from this world. And so if you're down that your critic's still nagging you after your many years of spiritual practice and meditation practice, you're, not al- you're in good company. But it behooves us to to you know, draw on the power of awareness to see, to be clear when that Voice when that habit when that tone is playing up <coughs> so I'm told you know I have no experience personally, I'm just doing this out of compassion for all beings everywhere, but <laughs> um. Sadly, I'm an expert (laughs) on the the machinations of the inner critic, because mine has come has you know stayed and it stayed. It comes and goes. It has cycles. It ebbs and flows. And but it's been around for a while. I've gotten to know it and gotten to work with it and gotten to see how it undermines or um, causes self doubt or. Um, just f- causing feelings of despair, or hopelessness, or worthlessness. So I often wonder, as you might do, um, what your life would have been like had you not encountered Buddhism, or meditation, right? or community, or wisdom teachings, or elders, like people who seem to, you know, be guides along the way. I mean, just, just imagine what you, where you'd be, you know, had you not encountered teachings like these, these wisdom teachings, these meditation teachings. I know for myself, I don't know where I would have ended up, but um, I don't think I would be in, in a, I'd be in a very different place than I am now. And when I first started my meditation practice when I was a young man, my critic was really, really, Vehement and aggressive and loud and oppressive, and I was very unhappy. You know, as you as as you get when you listen to the critic and you're beaten down by it. It's, I think it's the most common cause for depression and possibly suicide. So um, uh, I was really grateful to find these teachings that gave some kind of practice and resource to have some skill and resiliency to work with the critic. Even though people didn't talk back then when I was learning in 1984 about the critic, but they talked about working with your mind and working with just the craziness of your mind and the, the judging thoughts. (coughs) So <coughs> so I think so I talk about it as a way of uh, reminding you to bring light to it because when we don't bring light to it it's just on autopilot as we so often are and when we're on autopilot we don't notice when we don't notice we get more affected by what's going on in this little coconut So um so one of the first things mindfulness does is it helps us get clear about our inner experience. It helps us get clear about what's happening in our mind, in our thoughts, in our projections and assumptions and tendencies to futurize and catastrophize and all of that. And it can also help us recognize the difference between just, just a general thinking and planning um, and evaluating or discerning, and when we're judging, which has the flavor of, of, of a kind of uh, an attack on our worth, an attack on our value, an attack on our well-being, an attack on our goodness. So we want to be mindful when that particular thought strain is operating, because if we're not, then it's, it's landing, the thoughts land. One of my teachers in India, Punjaji, used to say, never let a single thought land anywhere. Never let a single thought land anywhere, which means your mind, your awareness is so like Teflon that they don't stick. They rise, you see them, you work with them, but you don't, they don't bind. Right? You've got enough space around them, enough clarity around them, enough freedom around them, actually. And we particularly want that, the idea of not landing with the critic. Right? There's, a, there's a line from the Buddha um, that goes something like, um, let your mind, let mind, and when, when, when in Buddhism they say mind, it means mind and heart. So you could say, let your heart be as spacious as the sky, so nothing can harm it, right. So, so which is similar to not letting something be able to land right, and take root and fester. Right. So, um, so with mindfulness, we have clarity and space to see things more clearly so they don't land, they don't stick, they don't lodge in the same way. It's, it's, the, it's that difference from being caught up in something, reactive, right? Frustrated, angry, irritated, you're stuck in traffic. You know your partner's doing something that's irritating to you, that you've asked them not to do 50 times, and they still keep doing it. And, and you, you're caught in that steamy reaction. It's hot, it's tense, it's tight, it's polarized. And then you see what you're doing, and you see the suffering, and and you go, oh wow, that's really I, I can let this go. I can breathe. I can not get so caught up in my position. I can see bigger picture. Right? And we we had the, suddenly this space. Right. So mindfulness has that capacity, as you know. So it has that capacity with the critic. So I'm going to just talk a little about, there's so many things I could say, and I, and I l- as I say, I lecture about this a lot and give workshops, and I'm just going to point to a few things just to uh, sharpen your, your attentiveness to this process, and to see the different ways it manifests so you can be more clear when it's happening, and you learn how to make the difference between a judging thought and a thought that doesn't have that same kind of emotional impact. Mm. So one of the ways the critic uh, manifests is perfectionism. If ever there was a suffering habit tendency in life, it's perfectionism. Not that there's anything wrong with being perfect. Yeah, you know, it's tough, you know, to be so perfect. But you know, it's okay. You got to live with it, you know. Um, but the, you know, and to aspire to, to, to create perfection, whether it's in a human form or in art or in your work or in your garden or in nature, and and to see this the 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 intensity of the pain that gets constellated around that pattern when we expect ourselves and how we are, and how we talk, and our work, and our art, and our performance, and whatever else, when, when there's some expectation that we should be perfect. Okay? Perfect is, is once a relative. I like to think of the imperfect perfection. Okay? perfectly imper- We're all perfectly imperfect. It's just a part of being human. Okay? It's like all the trees out here—the gnarly oaks and the bent-over bays and the um, dogwoods—and right. we don't we don't apply the same standard of perfectionism to ourselves as we do to a tree. You know, a tree half falls down; it's rotten, it's got lichen and moss all over it, and mushrooms growing out of it, and we think, "Oh, what a beautifully perfect tree." And we don't think, "Oh, it all needs a little improvement around the girth," you know, and a little more. F- canopy and you know a little more shiny limbs no we just it it is what it is right nature's a great teacher for that i love spending time in nature as you know and one of the reasons i do is because that mind-oriented perfectionistic habit doesn't have a place we we, we, there's more acceptance of of the way things are in nature which we can translate into, oh yeah, and I'm a part of nature too. We're all part of nature. Perfectly imperfect. So that that drive towards perfectionism creates impossibly high standards. Anybody do that? Anybody set impossibly high standards? And then what? And then the the sword comes out, right? And we crucify ourselves. We nail ourselves to it. You know, that happens a lot in meditation. Okay, I'm at spirit rock. Okay, it's gonna be really super turbocharged, you know. (laughs) It's gonna happen this time, whatever that thing is. The blue light, you know, it's coming. I know, transcendental something. You know, just like on the magazines. Mm. And so, and then we, we nail ourselves when we get distracted as if it's not human to have thoughts and and for the attention to be absorbed in thoughts. That's what it's called being distracted, losing metacognitive awareness for a moment. So one of the main messages that we get from the critic is it's not okay to be how we are. It's not okay to be human. It's not okay to have foibles. It's not okay to have idiosyncrasies. It's not okay to have the, the body like you have, the mind like you have. Right? It's not as if we can go to the body supermarket and order up a new one. And we kind of can, but that's, you know, <laughs> it doesn't really work forever. I love that line that gets attributed to Suzuki Roshi, even though I don't think he said it, where he said, you're all completely perfect as you are, and you could all do with a little improvement. But he said it that way round, not you could do with a little improvement, and then you'll be perfect. No, you're, you're fine just as you are. And of course, and there's always, there's always, you know, there's always things to do. There's always leaves to sweep. So notice as I'm talking, what ha- what happens in you? Do you start reflecting about your own critic? Do you cr- do you feel defensive? Leave my critic alone. <laughs> I wouldn't get out of bed if I didn't have my critic. I wouldn't know right from wrong if I didn't have my critic. Right? We all we all these loyalties to the critic. Yeah, we think we wouldn't have a conscience if we didn't have a critic. We wouldn't know r- we wouldn't know how to. M- Navigate difficult ethical decisions. Because the, the critic's so good at telling us what's right and what's wrong, and what's good and what's bad. Right? It's very clear. But fortunately, we have much more sophisticated, subtle, refined parts of our, our psyche, our being, our consciousness, our conscience that we can make these kind of decisions from. We don't need to go to that. More primitive part of our brain. And one of the reasons why the critic can be so painful, and, I, and I, this is one I, I get tripped up on, is um, the critic has perfect 20 20 hindsight, <laughs> right? It always knows what you should have done. It knows what stocks you should have invested or what you should have sold or what house you should have bought or sold and what person and relationship you should have married or not. Or you know, and you s- you know, It's very easy to look back and go, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I bought that. Right? But we do the best that we can in the moment with the resources and the information that we have. We do the best we can. We always do the best we can. Doesn't the critic doesn't believe that, but it's true. How could we do other than that? So to notice when your critic's on its high horse, because it's looking back at some past decision, some action, the coulda, woulda, shoulda mind, and it's torturous, and it's never-ending. If if we listen to that, Byron Katie has this, when I get caught in my regretting mind, oh, I should have, you know, whatever the story is. um, um, uh, Byron Katie has this line, well, you've been spared from that. You've been spared. So rather than think, oh, you know, if I'd just done that, then I'd have this, and then I got that, and you know, it would all be work out well. And she said, no, you've been spared. You've been spared that reality. Because of course, our mind makes up that that choice would have been, that life would have been perfect if I just bought that house, just at the end of the crash, and then, you know, and it's all, you know, life would have been perfect. I just done that one thing. You know. So one of the things I'm I'm noticing um working with uh when I'm working one on one with people is um You know, so the Buddha Buddha called this the second arrow, this piece I'm going to talk about. And the critics a great example of the second arrow, the second dot, where we have an experience that's already painful and difficult, like we're getting over, uh, we're working through grieving through the loss of a loved one, a friend, but it's been some time. Working with someone not so long ago who um, lost someone tragically in her family uh, some years ago, um, and it was such a traumatic incident that the grieving process was severely interrupted. And so, it, it, as often happens with trauma, when trauma and grief get intertwined, it just it protracts the process and it gets frozen. And people's lives often go into kind of a holding pattern. And hard to re-engage, hard to find the fire for work, f- find the fire for parenting, because there's so much loss and trauma frozen, and and it's very painful to be s- both grieving and stuck, and um, not being able to re-engage in life. And then to make matters worse, then the critic comes in and says, "Well, you should be over this. Like, get on with it." Like this happened a few years ago. Move on already. What's wrong with you? You're weak <coughs> if you think you've, if you're, you're still crying after all this time. Anybody heard that voice? Yeah, very common. We have these ideas of grief or stages of feeling and you know, we've got to move on after a certain period of time. And so it's very it's very it stands out to me when I when I when I'm working with people and I see the lay, this layer what the Buddha called the second dot, the second hour. The first dot is the initial pain, and the second dot is often the voice of the critic. Shaming, judging, blaming, rejecting. And what that robs us of is the doorway. To the healing what the critic often does is it shuts down vulnerability it shuts down openness and what I'm seeing more and more is vulnerability is so often the doorway to healing the the willingness the courageousness to feel pain to feel sorrow to feel lost to feel feel angst or whatever it is requires a certain vulnerability a certain tenderness, a certain not-knowingness, a certain disarmingness. That's not a word, but I made it up. (laughs) Um, And when we're judging ourselves and we're harsh with ourselves, that just, the the, the trapdoor of vulnerability closes, the heart closes, and we, we lose access to the more subtle layers of our feelings, of our sorrow, of our tenderness. And so, that, that process gets mm, frozen. So it's really important um, to see when that voice is operating and how it just shuts the process down, presses down on it, which is why we get depressed, because there's so much being pressed down. So one, one, one last way of talking about the way the critic manifests, and I'll talk about a little about working with it. So um, the more I think the more common voice that I notice with the critic is the, the mantra of what? What would be the critic's mantra? A self-confession time." "Ah, yes, you're not good enough, right? You're not something, something, something enough. Right? Anybody got that one? You're not know, smart enough. You're not know, young enough. You're not know, old enough. You're not know, wise enough. You know, you're not cute enough. You not know, Buddhist enough. You're not know, mindful enough. Right? Just you know. And you arrive here, just you know, green and fresh and curious about Buddhism, and you leave with a Buddhist critic. You're not <laughs> compassionate enough. <laughs> you know, you're not deep enough. You know, it just picks up the latest thing. You know, I'm doing this, um, uh, this ceramics class. I'm I'm uh, it's mostly working on a wheel and uh, throwing pots, which I love to do. Uh, and I love the instruction that the teacher gives us of. Especially the first few classes don't the point isn't to make a pot like if even if you make a pot you're gonna destroy it <laughs> like just get over make just and let yourself make the worst pots you've ever seen like let yourself make mistakes make make pots with holes in them make pots that are all wonky and wobbly you know let yourself play because it's you know especially doing art it's such an setup Oh, I should, after my second class, make this perfect, you know, vase, you know, vase even. Um, (laughs) And so it's very freeing just to go, oh, yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) Next. (laughs) So not enough. It's a word from Lao Tzu who said, those who truly know when enough is enough will always have enough. Mm. Those who know, or whatever I just said. (laughs) 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 Ah. Thank you. When you know that enough is enough, you'll always have enough. So I think of, you know, again, I think why uh, this practice is so helpful with working with the critic is we're learning to meet life as it is. We're learning to meet experience as it is. We're learning to be with ourselves. We're sitting still and we're letting whatever happens in the next 30, 40, 50 minutes, Mm -hmm. feelings, thoughts, emotions, impulses, rages, boredom, restlessness, We're just present, we just watch the show. So we're learning how to just be, let ourselves be, become human beings, not human doings, not homo shopians. Um, To know that we're enough just sitting here doing nothing. What a radical revolutionary act. Like the title of sylvia 's book don 't just do something, sit there <laughs> yeah. it 's a great title. So we learn how to meet our experience, let ourselves be and then and then not only do we do that, but we also cultivate an attitude of warmth like cultivate an attitude of kindness of care, of affection of friendliness to whatever 's here to our Sore knees to our achy back, to our lonely heart, to our busy, distracted, restless mind. Mm-hmm. So, this is a very different attitude to, our, to being with ourself and our experience with a kind attention than harsh judgment. Mm-hmm. So, when I started meditating. Thirty years ago those are the two practices I learned the practice of mindfulness and the practice of loving-kindness and when they come together we have a kind presence a compassionate attention and that's really the the, the main skill we need to deal with anything in life especially ourselves So this is from Sir Walter Scott, who said, caught not the critic's smile nor dread his frown. Caught not the critic's smile nor dread his frown, which means you can't win with the critic. Have you ever noticed that? You get up in the morning and it says to you, you know, you've worked really hard this week, you should sleep in. And then you sleep in and then you wake up and it says, God, you're such a slob. I can't believe that you didn't meditate again. You're so uncommitted to the practice, it's pathetic. I'm trying to find a quote. That is elusive. Oh well, wow. <laughs> I'm not perfect. What about that? <coughs> so we have these many. They, this is, there's just a. F- I just looked, at, poked at a few ways that the critic manifests. You all have your different ways. You know, the taskmaster. That, and I meet so many people who cannot rest until they have. Appease their critic with finishing their to-do list and how you finish it every finished to- your to-do list but anyhow um, so and I notice those people actually never rest because there's no appeasing that to-do list or the critic and it's not a fun existence so the good news w- th- with this practice is we can really transform this we can transform anything in our mind, and we can transform our relationship to the critic. But we first, as I've been saying, have to get clear. We have to be aware. We have to be mindful of when it's present. We have to understand the difference between a judging thought, which undermines our value and our sense of goodness and well-being. We need to see the difference between that and an evaluation, between that and a discernment. I'm not saying throw out. Judgment, you know, there might be many of you in this room need judge, a good, discerning, judging, critical faculty for your work as a lawyer, as an editor, as a writer, as an interviewer, as who knows, as a researcher, as a mom, as, you know, you, we need these discerning faculties. But we need, we're isolating that healthy aspect of the mind to the judgment that makes us feel deficient, unworthy, collapsed and bad. Right. It's really important to know the difference. Right? So you look and you the meditation. Sometimes I'll say to my students, you know, so keep a meditation log and just assess your practice. How you, what was the practice like? Were you concentrated? Were you focused? Were you distracted? Were you, what hindrances were predominant? What was the locus of your attention? Mm-hmm. And we can do that with the, just a clear assessment, Not a big deal, or we can. But when we do that with the judging mind, it's rather rather than noticing that we were distracted fifty percent of the time, the judgment is, "Well, that was just crap. That was just a waste of time. That was pathetic. That was pointless. That was like an example of the fact that you never can do this." Very diff. Same data, different different way of holding it. So, so first, we bring mindfulness. Secondly, we need to engage the heart. Because in my view, when we engage the heart, particularly when we engage compassion, we undercut the causticness of the critic, and we, br- we, bec- we, we start to become an ally with ourselves. So how does that work? The first thing we need to do is to start to feel if to feel what it's like to be on the receiving end of the judgments. So if you imagine you're driving along in the car and say you've gotten lost or your car's really Dirty and disgusting, and you haven't washed it for seven months. And, um, or, you know, you're, 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 for some reason you're late for a meeting. You know, this never happens to me, but I'm just using examples that I hear about. Um, and uh, I did wash my car this weekend, first time in six months, um, and with a watering can, because I know there's a water crisis, so it was a watering can. I did, literally, the watering can. Two, two water cans, is all it takes. Anyhow, um, so imagining the car and the critic's in the back seat. It's nobody you know, you know, but the critic's in the back seat, and it's on your case. And normally in that situation, when, when the critic is active and we're on our case because we messed up, because we forgot something, because we let someone down, because we acted out in a way that was we, we feel shame about, the, we, we tend to, our center of gravity shifts to the critic and we become the critic attacking ourselves. Does that sound familiar? Am I making sense here? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like we're sitting in the back seat judging ourselves harshly. And to engage the heart, we have to move from the back seat driver, critic, to being the driver and feeling the impact of those judgments of those accusations of those the shaming yeah? to feel what it's like when it lands in your heart and to talk to yourself like that how does it feel how does it feel when you're judging yourself attacking yourself putting yourself down how does it feel not good, not good? yeah hopeless, hopeless? Uh-huh. What else? Constriction. Constriction. Uh-huh. Abusive. Abusive. Uh-huh. Terrifying. What did you say? Terrifying? Mm-hmm. And what here or there? Exhausting. exhausting. Yeah, exhausting. Defeating. Defeating. Yes. Humiliating. Humiliating. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of shame. There's a collapse. So we feel it when the critics on our case, we feel it energetically as a kind of <laughs> heaviness. We feel it emotionally, as shame, as bad, as small, as pain. Different levels. When we can tune into the pain of that, when we acknowledge the pain of that, that's what allows the heart to engage. When we both feel it, feel into it, and acknowledge the painfulness of something. Compassion arises in response to pain, and but we have to acknowledge the existence of the pain. We have to feel what it's like to talk to ourselves. Because until we really feel that, we're not going to have strong enough reason to want to uh, fend off the critic. So I know for myself, when I... And I Early years of meditating, there was some point when I was in a meditation and my critic was just on my case, on my case about something. And I started feeling in the heart how painful that was to, to talk to myself like that. And if something in that shifting that allegiance from the voices in my head to the heart and the feeling that allowed it, allowed me to kind of pull out some of the power from the critic, which is really important. It's a bit like, you know, many ways to deal with a critic. I'll talk, I'll talk about a couple of strategies before we go. But when we, when we can meet anger, hatred, fear, oppression, violence, with heartfulness rather than hardness and reaction, it's actually much more powerful and much more effective. And it's the same that's true with ourselves. And so we can find that voice that comes from the fierce, compassionate heart that says, no, don't talk to me like that. Just like you would. So the analogy I often give is, imagine your best friend walked around with you all day and was your critic for the day, just for the fun of it. And, you know, you get out of bed and, you know, it's already started. God, you're up late already. God, the bathroom's a bit messy, isn't it? Oh, too much calories again for breakfast, yeah. I thought you were going to give up coffee. <laughs> you no, know, late for work, you know, on it goes. And you, you, How long would you put up with your friend doing that? Like a minute? <laughs> like half a minute? <laughs> You'd say, okay, like, you know, thanks. Like, yeah, I'm, just let me get on with making my breakfast. Thank you very much. Okay. But we, li- we give a lot of mental real estate to the critic. We give a lot of time and space to chomp away at the bit to our detriment. So, one of the things, um, so, there there are a whole list of um, strategies and ways to work with a critic mindfulness first and foremost recognizing it naming it labeling it oh judging oh judging oh judging myself for judging myself for judging sometimes counting your judgments in a day is really fun <laughs> 293 765 981 like really and that's w- only catching one in ten because most of them we don't even <laughs> notice. Right? So after you get to a certain number, you're like this is this is a little silly, this is a little farcical. So, but mindfulness isn't enough um, because because of the force and the strength of the critic, it's not enough. It has its place, and it has a limitation. And the limitation is. That sometimes we need to meet that force with a little more energy, a little more clarity, we need to be a little more skillful with our tactics. So, um, humor is a really excellent tactic because humor is a little similar to mindfulness in that when we can f- when we can see the humor in something, when we can find the sort of the irony and the wryness in it. We, we've, we've, some, we've somewhat disengaged. And the way that we can laugh at ourselves, the way comedians poke fun at us, is because we're slightly stepping outside of ourselves and looking at ourselves and seeing how funny we are. Because right? we're all pretty weird and funny and wacky, right? being human, right? you noticed? So um, this is a comic strip that I read in association with this theme, one of my favorites, and it's called... Rhymes with oranges, and some of you know this because I read it a lot. (coughs) It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. This is a popular meditation one. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Total setup for misery. Think about the people you regularly disappoint. And I add, especially the people who share your last name. <laughs> Disregard compliments from people who supposedly love you. And on it goes, right? right? And you could, we could create, all right, one of these days I'm going to create a list of everybody's little favorite ways to feel pathetic. You know, get on the bathroom scales in the morning, or whatever it is. And when we we look at that and go, oh, that's silly and that's funny, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Get home, twenty times magnification mirror <laughs> and wrinkles and blemishes. <clears throat> so when we can see the humor in it, this space, okay, we can we can see the humor in in, in just the our humanness. So I used to dress up my judge in this big grey English wig, you know. The I don't know if they still wear them anymore in England, but they used to. Do they? Yeah. Don't they do? Yeah, yeah. Like Tory? The Tory wig, yeah. old wig. Yeah, they used to call it the Wig Party, the Tory Party. Um, anyhow, with a big thing. What's it called? Gavel. 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 Yes. And I so went on these long meditation retreats, and I was on my case for not being, you know, enlightened yet. And um I I imagine my critics saying bad meditator, bad with a gamble <laughs> sentenced, <laughs> dismissed, meditator dismissed. Um. So... By the way, I have uh, many, many talks on this theme on Seed. This, this talk will also get uploaded to dharmacy. I go into a lot more detail about all of this when I do daylongs and workshops about it. Um, the main thing we want to look at when you're working with the critic is normally what, what we do is we engage it. We engage it in a debate, and we lose. Because you can n- notice you can't actually win with the critic. It's kind of relentless. And it, w- it will not stop. And it will be like, and, yeah, but. So what we normally do is we, st- we try to rationalize. Well, I'm not really that much of a bad manager. And I did wash my car on Sunday. And um, I was nice to that other person, even though I yelled at the kids. And, and we start defending ourselves because w- we feel like our worth, our value, our goodness is under attack, which it is, actually. And so we try to rationalize and defend and prop up ourselves, which of course is on very uh, we're on quicksand. But the main problem with that is that we don't really want to be giving much attention to the critic. In fact, mostly you want to be ignoring it, and it might not go away, right? So sometimes it does. Sometimes it gets really quiet. Just like with anything. If you feed it, it grows. If you don't feed it, it withers. Right? Same with the critic. So, um, mostly the attitude is one of not being that interested in it. Right? Have you noticed that the critic doesn't have that much original stuff to say? Like you've heard it like 50 times before, yesterday. right? I mean, there's really, I mean, I, I get people on my workshops to write their cr- judgments down, and I encourage you to do that. Get, get clear about them. And sometimes it's not actually not that many. It seems like a f- head full of judgments, but when you write them down, it's like, oh, hmm. Hmm. not too bad. Sometimes it's a very long list, but you know. But actually, when you write them down and you read them, we, it, we actually see them a little more clearly than the voices in our head. When, you read, when we read, we bring a little more of a discerning faculty. So when we read, you're worthless and bad and never going to get your life together. You go, well, that's not actually really accurate. <laughs> that's not really who I am. Right? I may have challenges with certain things in my life and I may have things to work on, but bad, worthless, and hopeless, not. So it's a bit like there's a there's a great line from Ramdas who talks about this idea of, you know, getting rid of your ego and uprooting your personality. And he said, that doesn't really it's not really what happens. You just don't feed it, you don't give it much attention, and it, it sort of follows you around, but sort of shrinks in size and becomes more like this little yapping dog that you know, just kind of comes with you wherever you are, but you don't really give it that much attention. So we can cultivate that attitude. So one of the things I'll say, so I, 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 I have various f- things I say when the critic is operating, um, usually using some kind of irony or sarcasm or humor, so, when I know I do things that activate the critic, right? We all have our places where we get on our case, right? Maybe, it's a, maybe your house is messy. Maybe if you're late for an appointment. Maybe if you let someone down. Maybe if, you know, we all got our little places that are trigger points. Right? So, one of mine is getting lost and being late. And um, I'm always cutting it fine when I come here to Monday night. So,. Um, my credit comes up often on going one 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 north when I hit that traffic in Porto um, Madeira that is there magically every day without reason, <laughs> um, and uh, and when the credit comes, because you know I didn't expect that traffic to be there today, even though it's been there every other day for the last <laughs> since the, you know whenever. I'll just say, oh please, oh please. Really, is that all you have to say? Can I now get back to my driving? Thank you very much. Can I get back to my NPR station? And so there's a sort of a, um, and this is an actually another move that's really effective with the critic is to, it's like a Tai Chi move. You acknowledge it, oh, thank you, it's really helpful. You're right, I'm late. Thank you for that really useful information. <laughs> yes, I should have left early. That's a really smart idea. Thank you. And you just kind of, you just try like, no, you don't try to defend yourself in a way that you engage and therefore lose the argument. You just go, yeah, you're right. So what? Yeah, and the car's filthy. You're right, <laughs> again. Oh, well. Life goes on, apparently. Thank you and go bother somebody else. So I won't burden you with my usually very long list of how to work with the critic. But let me just see if there's anything else I wanna throw in here. Yeah, so I think um, yeah, there are many different ways to work with the critic, and I come from a particular vantage point. There are, there are orientations that more look to feeling compassion for the critic, feeling the compassion for the pain that it came from, feeling compassion for um, the, 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 the critic's sort of primitive mechanism is trying to protect us from pain. From harm, which served us when we were four and five and eight and twelve, when we were had these really intense energies and impulses, and and the critic was a way to help us navigate our family structure, our social structure, so we could fit in and maximize love and warmth and affection. Has its place, and um, so you can see, you can sometimes look and see what vulnerability is getting triggered that activates the critic, that feels like it needs to come in and defend and protect through harsh judgment. But as we grow older, we can see there's much better ways to navigate than resorting to that very heavy-handed shaming mechanism. And I did find that quote that I was looking for. This is from Dustin Hoffman. A good review from the critic is just another stay of execution. (laughs) This is when when the critic is playing that kind of good cop, bad cop. Or as I think it was the composer, mm, I forget, Strauss, I think it was, who said, no statue has ever been erected in honor of a critic. So you know so i'm offering these words as an invitation for you to pay attention to your mind pay attention to the voices pay attention to the tone right when you when you're in medit- when you're meditating and you notice you've, you got distracted and the thought and the mind thought comes up get back like oh god you've done it again <sighs> oh i think there's some critic happening here breathe relax thank you for your opinion come back start again So just to have a radar for that, to see it, to notice it, to feel how it lands, to know you have room to disengage, to find humor, to find space, and to ultimately not be so bothered by it, right? Or as the Buddha said, Mara, I see you. Oh, judging one, I see you. Thank you, have a nice day. Thank you, have a nice day. See you soon. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Hey love, oops.